Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. This year is, I don't know if you've picked up yet, but it, it's a year on the church for a lot of reasons. And um, we're building. We're building. And so if you, for instance, if you didn't hear the message a couple weeks ago where I denied the autonomy of the local church as a doctrine that we should hold to as a church, uh, then you really should listen to that. You really, really should listen to that. And just, just help me, and please, and just listen to it. <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, it's just so helpful for our church to think through some of these things together. And we're building and thinking and building and talking and teaching and instructing. And, um, and so some of these truths build on one another, and I really don't want anybody to le- be left behind on the progress of, of where we're at. So, um, and just help me, would you? Just help me. Love you all. Acts chapter 15, I, I actually just want to back up to... Um, Actually, verse 23 of, verse, of chapter 14. And uh, let's just start reading. I'm just going to read through the whole thing this time, unlike last time. And when they had appointed elders um, for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is Paul and, and Barnabas and their work. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remain no little time with the disciples. So, you know, Antioch is, is like the local church that's kind of Paul and Barnabas's local church, kind of their, their home church where they're sent out from um, to do the work. And it wouldn't have been wonderful to be there and hear those testimonies. This would have been really an incredible experience. Chapter 15, verse 1. Um, after all, after the high of the testimonies comes the conflict, <laughs> you know. So everything's going amazing. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Now today we would just say Paul and Barnabas were wrong for debating with them. That's what we would say. We're so uh, averse to all things that have to do with argument. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles. Okay, so track with this a little bit. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed. Somebody sent them. There's an involvement of the church here. Um to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders, the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, about this question. So, you know, why couldn't the apostle Paul and Barnabas just actually put an end to this issue? You ever thought about that? 
This is the Apostle Paul. Why couldn't he just put an end to the issue? You know, it's fascinating. It's fascinating that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are sent from the church to Jerusalem to figure this out. And that the Apostle Paul actually considered himself to not have final authority to just deal with this and put it to rest himself. That's really interesting to me. That's not what you expect from the Apostle Paul. In the way we often think about him, right? He writes the New Testament, and whatever he says goes, but here... You understand what I'm saying. It's new to you, probably, to think about that. Verse 3, So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. You know, it's interesting in Acts 15 how many times all three are mentioned. By the apostles and the elders and the church. And they declared all that God had done with them, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Now, that sentence doesn't make sense. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. That's never how you think about the party of the Pharisees, right? So, we have a different... Like that's, that verse is there to tell us what's happening, to help us understand the nature of the kind of conflict we're dealing with. Believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Genuine believers apparently are wrong about something here. Okay? Now, verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, 
and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled uh, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So, James, the leader in Jerusalem, says this. The response, verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now, why can't Paul and Barnabas just take the message back? That's a really important question. Why? It's really an important question. I just want you to think about that for a moment, okay? Why can't they just do it themselves? Why do more people have to go with Paul and Barnabas? It's the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Can't they be trusted, you know? They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we, we gave them no instructions... It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord. In other words, this issue has, been, has went to a broader um, body and another multitude of counselors and discernment, and there has been a unified agreement reached to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives. These are men who can be trusted, who are reputable. They've risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. All I can think is the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were in a, a, a debate in the church, and when... That happens, and the church in Antioch is wondering who they're supposed to trust and who they're supposed to believe, that men with Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem, and then they work it out with the other apostles and elders and the church in Jerusalem, and then uh, instead of just sending Paul and Barnabas back, because Paul and Barnabas could make up um, whatever story they wanted to make up and take back to Antioch, they also sent trusted men who were not from Antioch, but were from Jerusalem, who had risked their lives for the gospel's sake, back with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas to Antioch with this letter to affirm the decision that was made and that the letter and truth stated were the um, authoritative pronouncement and the conclusion that they had reached with one, into with one accord. Okay, That's what's happened. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas even needed reinforcements to build trust and peace in the churches. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Very sweet. Encouraging. You know, 
the grace of God has come to the Gentiles. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, right? Can you imagine? If you, have, you have to think about people, right? People in a congregation wondering if they're saved or not. They're unsettled. Doubt has been cast upon their salvation. And not only has doubt been cast upon their salvation, they don't know which leaders to trust. Because some leaders have come from Jerusalem and, uh, and the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are arguing with them about this. And, and so doubt's cast upon their salvation and they don't know who to trust. For the congregation, this is a very difficult place. And so when the pronouncement comes to them via this letter with you know, a multitude of counselors involved and comes back and says, these, gives these few things that I'm not going to get into right now, but the point is um, you are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not need to be circumcised. Okay. Verse 31, and, then when, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Because they could trust the decision and it encouraged them that they were found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church rejoiced and was put at peace. And in part, that was because of the nature of the process. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And then they lived happily ever after. There was never any problems again in the church until the next paragraph where Paul and Barnabas separate over a conflict with uh, John Mark. (laughs) Which gets resolved down the road, actually, in the scriptural record, which is really precious and sweet and encouraging, actually. But let us pray. Father, we need your help. I feel so unable and so weak in so many of what we're studying as a church and we're working through as pastors and elders and as a congregation. And I pray that you would help us and give wisdom into your word and humility in us, and lead us in repentance of trust in ourselves. Give us a heart like the Apostle Paul, even to entrust um, himself to the work and authority of other men for the good of the church. And so I pray that you would help us as we find our way forward in a better way than what we are now as a church. These are your words, and they are true, and we praise you for them. Help us to submit to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, our church, our season as a church is leading the church forward. And, and, I, and I've had, I've said um, several times that one of the biblical realities that our church has to uh, get to a better place of good order in following the scriptures is in our church governance. You know, so this is now going to be a boringly instructional sermon about, you know, church governance. But church governance is extremely important. 
because it is so connected to how Scripture defines authority, responsibility to be in the right places for the good of Christ's church and churches. And ultimately, this work of putting the right authority and the right responsibility in the right places for the good of the whole church is a labor of love for the church. This is one of um, uh, the, the truths that Scripture teaches and that, that the effort to get our church into a better place in, for churches to follow Scripture is a work of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and how He's established His church and love of the sheep and love of the church's officers. So it's extremely important. And so the goal is to do the best we can to understand Scripture and then submit ourselves to God's way of church governance. So two weeks ago, I did argue for a denial of the autonomy of the local church from Acts 15. On, and, and really on one premise, it just came out in my readings of Acts 15 now, but on one premise, if the apostles and elders needed help And the congregation needed help and needed something that had authority in the matter of this division, in the matter of this debate and argument, which really was significant in regards to the gospel. Um, If they needed help, why would we ever think that we never need help and we never need authority over us of any kind in any way, shape, or form? Do we really, are we really so proud of ourselves that we think we are better than them? And the answer is, yes, we are so proud of ourselves that we think we are better than them. That's what we think. And I would just ask you, well, I argued from wisdom two weeks ago, and I ordered argued from one major premise in Acts 15 that shows itself that's foreign to most of us in this room. Um, And I gave many illustrations, pastors and elders and congregations, and why they would need help outside of themselves, and sometimes why they would actually need authority. There's a difference between just getting wisdom and then having authority. and uh, an authority that the congregation and the pastors and elders would need to submit to. Now, all I argued to affirm at that point in that message um, was that churches need help and they need authority over them on certain matters. Let me give you some examples. And I gave some in the message, um, but certainly things like pastoral accountability, discipline, encouragement, in matters of doctrine, character, and pastoral skill. And um, certainly churches need help when church leaders are in conflict or when there's a conflict of interest with the church leaders and the church in handling a matter of maybe scandal of some kind in the church or when, you know, uh, someone connected to uh, or someone connected to the elders themselves, their children, a family member, um, has committed or confessed to either past or present sexual sin or abuse or it's discovered. Or when the whole church is in conflict on a matter. 
and needs someone to bring peace. This is what Antioch is. Antioch is in complete conflict on this matter. You know, those idiots, they couldn't figure out that you didn't need to be circumcised. <laughs> yeah. Also simple, isn't it? They were in complete conflict on the matter. Well, those must have just been all the immature Christians. See how arrogant we are? We just are constantly judging the Christians in Scripture and the Christians in history. Constantly. Everything's just easy for us to figure out. It's like, the more I'm a pastor, the less easy everything is to figure out. (laughs) I... I mean, the amount that I know less than I knew 10 years ago is really remarkable to me. <laughs> you know? It's like, I felt like I've learned some things and know way less in the last 10 years. And my understanding of the gap between what I need to know and understand and what I actually know and understand just continues to get larger. So I'm hopeful for the future. (laughs) Those are the kinds of examples that I'm talking about when I'm talking about the church needing help and sometimes and in some ways actual authority. So... Churches have systems of governance. The term that's used for it is called church polity. Church polity. And it's how rule exists in the church. It's how rule exists in the church. And who holds authority, who holds power of command and direction over the church. And the church's decisions. And um, we as a church have a short list of difficulties. (laughs) Short list of difficulties. (laughs) Is that what it is, Joel? Is it a short list of difficulties? <laughs> we have a short list of difficulties in our church. Only about this many. Once we overcome those, I'm sorry, I'm just cracking myself up by what I wrote in my notes, and now I'm thinking about it and thinking, I just don't think that's a good way to say that. But we do, in some sense, we have a short list of difficulties as it um, relates to our church's polity. And... The goal is to be more biblical and more careful and more loving to the church as a whole. So our staff is now meeting weekly. We're working through our bylaws. um, And uh, we probably should have started meeting weekly a long time ago, but now we are. And um, I think we're better prepared to do it now. And our bylaws, you've heard me say, are just terrible. I've been saying that for years. They're just terrible and they need fixed, and they need something way better than what it is. And what's actually been striking me, uh, what really struck me on Thursday morning as we were meeting and working through some things, was just how unloving they are. They're just cold. They're very cold. And the words and the language that are used are... They're just cold. That's the way I would describe it. It's, it's loveless to the Church of Jesus Christ. And it makes sense, right? I mean, um, Chicago Harvest was uh, in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, and what made that whole shtick work was corporate business 
which fills, I mean, every corporate business imaginable is in Northwest Chicago. When you drive up through the interstates, it's corporate headquarter after corporate headquarter after corporate headquarter. And so the church, uh, in syncretism with best business, corporate business practices, creates bylaws, and it um, doesn't have to be full of the love that exists in the church when it's really just operating like a business board. The elders are operating like a business board, and the bylaws are very um, uh, businessy, is I guess the way I would say it. Just loveless of Christ's sheep. That really struck me as we were working through it. And I hadn't read through them the way we did on Thursday morning for a while. I don't know if you believe this or not, but I don't read our bylaws for my devotions every morning. Here's the short list of difficulties. Our system of elder rule is not a historical pattern of governance found in church history. You've heard me say that before. Our system of elder rule is not a historical pattern of governance found in church history. It's rooted in business boards, not in biblical truth. The second thing is our congregation in our bylaws really has no say in our church's decisions whatsoever. You've heard me say that before, too. Um, I'm just very unhappy with that. There's no protections or necessary involvement of the congregation according to our bylaws. Three, we have no real structured help or authority over us in any matter. And so if our church gets into a difficult place, guess what we have? No help. So our church is vulnerable. Okay. We're independent and autonomous, and this is very dangerous because it's not good for man or churches to be alone. Now, a reminder, what is the goal of church governance or church polity? To obey Scripture, put the right authority and right responsibilities in the right places for the good of all. That's the goal. What authority, for instance, and responsibility rests with the elders? What authority and responsibility rests with the pastors? And is there a distinction in authority between, say, me and Joel? What authority rests with the congregation? Any outside authorities? This is what church governance is set out to define in a way that would be scriptural as best we can understand and wise as best we can understand and loving to all of them. In church history, there are three major um, systems of church governance, and so I want to give you a little bit of instruction about them. The first one... Um, is Episcopal, Episcopal church governance, or Episcopalian, okay? And um, I want you to first understand that when I go through the three different historical patterns of church governance, that there's variance within each one. You know, I don't want to try to, I'm not going to get into the weeds a lot today. I'm going to introduce something to you. And then in conclusion, I'm going to give you a confession about why we are where we are um, personally. And then I'm going to give you a few things that we can affirm 
and one proposed change to our bylaws to just get us further down the road to a more healthy place, okay? So that's where we're going. But I don't want you to take what I'm saying and uh, act like this is all that could be said. Or, um, and, and, and one of the things that I want you, I definitely want you to understand is there is no perfect system because the systems all involve men. You know? It's as simple as saying there's no perfect church. There's no perfect system, right? Because the systems have men in them, and there's no way to structure in men perfectly so that you can't have something that ends up broken. That's just, right, we understand that. You understand that. So there's no perfect system. There's variance. There's wide degrees of variance between each one, yet there's some common commonalities in each one that makes one Episcopalian, one Presbyterian, and one Congregational. Okay, those are the three. Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Congregational, okay? What we are is none of those. (laughs) We are none of those. Okay, so Episcopal. Um, Episcopal is what you typically think of when you think of a denominational hierarchy. You think of... The Roman Catholic Church is an Episcopalian form of government, right? The Episcopal Church is an Episcopalian form of government. The Anglican Church is an Episcopalian form of government, okay? So you generally think of a hierarchy where you have priests who are over congregations or a priest over a congregation, and then over the over maybe many priests and congregations is a bishop. And that bishop has authority over the priests and the congregations. And then um, above the bishops then, uh, the groups of bishops, there are archbishops. And so it really is just a hierarchical structure of authority, and it's very top-heavy in its authority down to all of the people below. That's Episcopalian government, and it comes from the term um, episcopes or episcopus, which is a Greek term, and it comes up in 1 Timothy 3.1, the term, if anyone desires to be an overseer, that term is episcopes, that's where it comes from, okay, Um, and so in Acts 15, for instance, and let let me just say this, I think you can get parts of all of these certain parts of all of these forms of government in Scripture. They're all there in various forms, okay? You could see them all. And we can act with some charity to these things, and I'll give you some reasons why in a moment. But um, I could see how someone could look at Acts 15 and really think that what's happening in Acts 15 is Episcopalian because the church in Jerusalem, um, you know, let's call James a bishop. And... There's a denominational hierarchy that Antioch is under, and um, Jerusalem's just kind of the headquarters of the denomination, and it's really just a top-heavy kind of authority. You know, the Apostle Paul maybe uh, needed to submit to uh, Bishop James, for instance. I mean, you, 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 could, you could understand how someone could, could conclude such things, um, is all I want to say about that. So... It's not the craziest thing anyone ever created, is all I'm trying to tell you. It's not the craziest thing that Baptists try to make it. There is some, some level of way that people could get there. But 
I'm extremely unconvinced that it's what we should do. Um, and, uh, and I'm unconvinced for several reasons. But on the whole, there really just isn't a lot of scriptural support for Episcopalian forms of government. There just is not a lot of it. You can find a way to get there, but that's not really even the argument that those in the Episcopal church and who believe in this church polity, they don't actually make a long scriptural argument, really. Their main argument is just this is how things got started, and therefore it should just keep going this way. That's really, uh, actually, that's what they say. Quote, No order of diocesan bishops appears in the New Testament. End quote. From them. Okay? So they argue that it formed naturally in the early church and and should remain. Secondly, this. There's no plurality of elders in the congregations. There's no plurality of elders in the congregations. And that's a real problem. But secondly, they also argue for a chain of succession from the apostles, as Rome also does. Um, But I think it's that we have to understand there are breaks within the chain of leadership from the time of the apostles. You know, it's like every elder isn't, you know, of physical descent from Peter. That's what Rome argues, okay? And not only that... There's breaks in the command because the churches are involved in decisions to send Paul and Barnabas out. And that's important to understand. It's not just there's no plurality of elders. There's also not the same uh, work within the congregation to even send someone. Paul and Barnabas had to be sent out by the churches. You understand that? (laughs) No pastor understands that today. Pastors just go do whatever they want, and no one... Well, that's it. Pastors just go and do whatever they want. That's the day in which we live. Paul and Barnabas had to be sent out by the churches. It's amazing to me. And I want to say in the hierarchy, the further the hierarchy goes, the more authority and responsibility rests at the top without a knowledge of the sheep. And so it deviates tremendously from the nature of what I would argue is good pastoral care and good shepherding in the life of Christ church. And so I'm unconvinced. I could say more about that, but I'm unconvinced for several reasons. Um, My notes are all messed up. There we go. I'm unconvinced for several reasons, but I also don't want you to be a snob against Episcopalians, and here's why. J.C. Ryle, one of my heroes, was a bishop in the Church of England. He was the first bishop in Liverpool in England. And he's one of my church heroes. I love J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle came out in a lot of my preaching through the Gospel of Luke. And so godly men have differed on these things and how to think about them, in part, some of it just because of the historical context in which they lived. And here's what you want to do. You want to immediately just go, well, J.C. Rowell was just wrong. And that's the, it's like, well, he was just wrong. And I just think, do you want me to treat you like that? 
No, you don't want me to treat you like that. You want me to understand your life and your personality and your temperament and your context and your children and your family lineage and the particular sins and temptations of your heart and of your wife and of each of your children and to consider the whole picture of all of these things. And yet you look at a man uh, like J.C. Rod and you go, well, he was just wrong. I just think, just don't do that, okay? Just don't do that. Even if we think... That's not what we would do in the context in which we were in. And according to the scriptures that we understand, let's not just wipe godly, really good men off the face of the earth with our arrogant judgments and ignorance, okay? All right. Second, historical church polity is Presbyterian. Presbyter is elder. Um, Greek presbyteros. I never teach you Greek words, but I just decided you needed to know them today. (laughs) Well, I just want you to see how close the connections are between the Greek terms and the words we use today on these points. That's all, really. Most of the time, it's pretty insignificant. So this is 1 Peter 5. Chapter 1, so I exhort the elders among you. I exhort the presbyters. The, I exhort the presbyter. Well, in that case, it's plural. What Presbyterus. Is that right, Joel? Joel doesn't know. Esteban probably would know, but Joel won't know. In Presbyterianism, the the big picture goal is a balance of powers. That's the big picture goal. A balance of powers, authority, rule in the church. Um, If I were to give you what I think uh, um, in the Presbyterian churches, let me just give you a summary. The church is led by a plurality of elders. The church votes to appoint those elders, and the elders lead them, whereas in the Episcopal church, a bishop maybe just appoints a priest over a congregation. Pastors and elders of churches then, appointed by congregations, um, the groups of them form uh, together what's called a presbytery, which is the group of pastors and elders. And in that group of pastors and elders, they help oversee the churches. They, and if I were to say what I think the heart of it is, first of all, let me say this about Presbyterianism. The first principle of Presbyterianism is that it is very, very complex. <laughs> that's, the, that's the first principle of Presbyterianism. Very, very complex. This, the, the, if I were to get at what the heart is, because men have said lots of things down through the ages about it, but if I could get at what the heart is and what makes for a good presbytery, it would be accountability and discipline of pastors and the church's elders primarily. If that doesn't happen you don't have anything that's useful, you know? So like in the Presbyterian Church of America today, since there's no accountability and no discipline of the pastors and elders of any of the churches over anything at all, of any significance at all, um, then the whole structure is just useless. It's just useless. If you lose that, you lose everything. And so this is why the system can't be everything, because men are a part of it. Character matters. Faith, actually operating by faith and living like Christians, 
matters, and doing faithful work as Christians matters, and amongst pastors and elders, that matters. So, somebody should care if the pastors are all gay in the churches. (laughs) Somebody should care. Why does no one care? I don't know. But the whole thing's broken. So, the the heart of what good Presbyterianism is, though, because I'm not trying to say that the whole structure is bad. What I'm trying to say is the heart of it is good accountability and discipline of pastors and elders in the churches. And so that's, that's, that's like the baseline, critical, you know, point. If you don't have that, anything else that's good about it, you won't have. Um, I will say this, good Presbyterians are very mindful of local congregations. Here's what you, here's the way you tend to think about Presbyterianism. You tend to think Presbyterianism is actually just like Episcopalian. That's how you tend to think about it. You tend to think about it being just a hierarchical structure that's top-heavy. And the authority rests all up here and then is pressed down on the churches. But that, that's Episcopalian. That's not Presbyterian. Right? Presbyterianism, the congregation votes in their uh, pastors, their elders. The congregation actually has authority to make um, uh, decisions with their votes on a handful of matters. And they appoint those elders to represent them and to rule over them and then to represent them to the presbytery, and then there's groups of presbyteries then that form, you know, a larger general assembly in the case where it grows to that kind of size. So, but it's much more ground up. It's much more ground up because the congregation votes for who's going to represent them and represent them in the presbytery and represent them to the bigger general assembly, the group of presbyteries, and so the will of the congregation actually really matters. Okay. A lot could be said. There are faithful Presbyterians and there are unfaithful Presbyterians, just like there are faithful Episcopalians and unfaithful Episcopalians. The third polity is congregationalism. The essence of congregationalism, um, oh, I wanted to say in Acts 15, where Presbyterianism kind of roots itself is in that delicate work in Acts 15 of there's the apostles and the elders and there's the congregation and they're all kind of all these moving parts in order to help the church. And so Presbyterianism's effort is to try to kind of work out the balance of powers with good wisdom and and good scriptural truth. That's the effort of it in order to deal with what the church needs help and authority with. Okay, so congregationalism. Um, This is where, in Acts 15, everybody can use Acts 15, right, to make their point. You know, it's kind of like everybody wants Augustine. Everybody claims Augustine. Christian or (laughs) non-Christian, you know, claims Augustine. So, but I'm trying to be honest with you about that reality so that we can keep dialoguing about this and, and grow together, okay? But it's Paul and Barnabas were sent by the congregation. 
That's congregationalism. The, the, the final authority rests with the congregation. Now, there's all kinds of different forms of congregationalism. Um, there's all kinds of different forms of congregationalism in history. There's a sole pastor form where you have one pastor. He's hired by the congregation. There's um, forms where pastors and deacons function like a board of elders. There's, uh, there are congregations that have a plurality of elders leading the congregation, and, but still final authority rests with the congregation, and uh, the elders don't represent the congregation's represent the congregation with the same kind of authority as maybe in Presbyterianism. But uh, then there's a congregationism that's like there's, there's no authority but the Holy Spirit, you know? Uh, the whole congregation just needs to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And then there's a pure democracy kind of congregationalism where every single decision must be made by the will of the congregation. And the endless stories you hear about, you know, business meetings that just constantly explode is over oftentimes the pure democracy kind of scenario where every decision, nobody has authority except the whole congregation about everything, which means there's no authority and no order. There's just everybody's their own authority, and it turns into a lawless mess. Um, so, but the point being in, like, let's say Matthew 18, in the pattern of church discipline, the third step of, of what we've kind of talked about is church discipline when we get to excommunication is tell it to the church. And then the church is supposed to have an authority to, you know, cast out this person from among us. Um, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, there's uh, speaking of the man in 1 Corinthians 5 when he um, seems to have repented and is being restored. The Apostle Paul says... Uh, for, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now, there's some seeming effort of the congregation. Or when the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians and is dealing with this man and was wanting them to deal with this man, he's not just writing to the elders purely to deal with it. He's, so the argument goes, the authority rests with the congregation to cast this man out. Okay, that's congregationalism. And it takes many forms. Those are the three. Episcopal, Presbyterian, Congregationalism, Presbyterianism is the hardest to understand. So it's okay if you're foggy. Because you know what? I'm foggy. So. And of course, I gave no details about how. I gave no details. Does this matter at all? It does matter. And it matters because history bears out the consequences of a lack of faithfulness to Scripture. And you know it matters because you see, just for instance, one example, you see how much churches are blowing up and exploding constantly because of failure to to take some of these things in Scripture seriously, wrestle with them, and actually put good principles of Scripture and of wisdom and of love into practice that can help in a lot more situations than churches have the ability to actually get help for. And so, um, a confession. This is where most of you, most of you are congregationalists by background, at some degree. 
Um, you probably had pastors. Some of you may, maybe came from a church with elders. Probably not most of you even came from a church with elders, actually, in your background. If you were in a part of a church, like before you came to us, you probably had pastors and deacons, um, maybe functioning like a board. Some of you, some of you, or some, in some form of those kind of things. I don't know if any of you came from a pure de- democracy kind of congregationalism. But I came from, uh, my background was congregational. Um, we had a, a strong senior pastor, and then working together with the deacons, that was essentially the um, oversight of the local church, the pastor and deacons essentially functioning like elders. And, uh, but the final authority really rested in the congregation. If the congregation wanted to, you know, do something, they could do it. And, um, and so it was very congregational. And probably for 15 years, okay, for 15 years, I have been committed to a plurality of elders in a local congregation and the importance of the congregation having authority on a short list of things, okay? And, um, but, and so I've been committed to that for a long time. Here's where the difficulty starts to arise and why it actually matters in the history of our church. You understand, every church has a history. And so in the history of our church, when I was wrestling with whether to go to Chicago Harvest to go to their training center to plant a church, that was, this actually was the main issue I had with them, was I didn't think they cared about the congregation. And so we debated with them about that and what could be done. And, um, and the truth of the matter is I sought a lot of counsel about that particular issue, and I received no good counsel. Looking back, if I could counsel myself 15 years ago, I would have said very different things than what I was told. And what, um, uh, you know, it was, it was, I was, the counsel I received was kind of like, well, yeah, but you're going to be an autonomous church, so you can go do what you want to do. And that was like the dumbest, naive thing ever, you know? Like you're going to go to a place like Chicago Harvest and plant a church and then think you have autonomy to, to the degree that you can do whatever you want to do, you know? And so I just, so what I ended up doing was going to Chicago Harvest and then just always being very mindful of the congregation and paying attention to the congregation, you know, seeking to make sure that whatever we did and moving forward had a level of congregational consensus to it. But I've always been uncomfortable with it. I've just always been uncomfortable with the way we function. Um, I mean, I even told our staff, I don't know if I told our staff and elders, but I'll tell them right now. Um... I've told them I would submit myself to a congregational vote to be the pastor of this church 10 years down the road if the congregation thought I should do that. I mean, I really would. Now, if I'm just going to say that, and it's like a stupid, humble virtue signaling, then that's useless. But I, I really would do that because I think that's what should happen. I actually think a pastor should be voted on by the congregation. The congregation should have authority on some things. That's where I was. Now, the piece that I've learned since then that I didn't have back then because I believed in the autonomy of the local church for so long and was taught that for so long and believed it is that 
we also need some level of help and authority over us on, a, on some things. Okay, so let me see if I can. And, and so there's always been this tension, you know? It's like, well, did I just compromise my principles by going to Chicago and um, planting a church with Chicago? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of. I kind of, but I also kind of thought I could make it actually work the way I wanted to. But once the bylaws were handed down and there was not really complete autonomy, like I thought there was going to be, you know, then I realized, oh, I can't change that. So then I was in a really weird position for a long time. And so here we are, 11 years later, finally having this conversation, <laughs> you know. Um, so what can we affirm? What can we affirm? That'd be a good question. What can we affirm at this point, and what can we do that will make us make it better than we currently are? Because that's what I'm going for. At this stage, I want to make it better than what we currently are. So here's, here's, here's what we can affirm. First of all, the congregation should be given more authority on, on some points, things like this, because the whole congregation matters, things like hiring pastors, appointing elders and deacons, the church budget um, I even think you should vote on my salary. <laughs> I really think, I think you should be voting on my salary. And um, Esteban's non-salary. All right. Um, <laughs> oh, poor Megan. Those two are amazing. If anybody could squeeze the blood out of a turnip, it is those two. You know, and if they couldn't, I don't know how we would pull this off. But they're just amazing, aren't they? Um, facility purchase you know if we're going to spend $750,000 or a million dollars on a church building um, I just don't think the elders should just be able to unilaterally make that decision and bring the decision to you I just don't think that's the way it should be now we can do that (laughs) we can do it Bylaws changes, doctrinal statement changes. That's a big, that's a grouping of the kinds of things that I think the con- some authority should rest with the congregation in decision making for the sake of the good of the church. The second thing we can affirm is elders have authority to lead and rule for the good of the flock. So the plurality of elders, some authority with the congregation. We're not changing anything about the plurality of elders. Um, and the third thing we can affirm is, here's how I wrote it. And I think this is just what's true at present. So I'm trying to just tell you what's in our heart to be able to say that's true at present. Some level of help and authority needs to exist over us, not complete autonomy. Okay? Here's some practical thing we could do, because we... Can in, we can do the first one fairly easily in regards to the congregation. We have the second one, a plurality of elders. Um, here's something that our elders have talked about really for a long time. I, I don't know how long our pastors and elders have had this discussion, but um, we think uh, our bylaws need to reflect these realities. So... In the current absence of any formally organized structure association um, that could give any help and authority, here's what we think we 
should do and actually write in our bylaws, okay? Our elders believe, our pastor and elders believe that our bylaws for now need to include a statement that allows for us to call in men we trust who can exercise authority and help for our sheep and leaders when matters arise that it is necessary to do so, and we would submit to them. Our leaders would submit to them, and our congregation would submit to them. Okay? So, we call in men we trust because there's an issue, and I wish we could have done that two and a half years ago. I honestly just wish this was written in our bylaws, and we could have called in three to five men we trust, and who could have investigated the nature of the conflict and have, could have given a judgment to you and if could, could have told you the nature of the situation in all directions necessary for you to know, and we could have submitted to them, myself included. I just wish we would have had that. Trust me, it would have gone way better. It would have gone way better. And then you wouldn't have had to sit there and go, but yeah, but what were Josh's sins? <laughs> they just would have told you. And then they would have put it in proper proportion and proper perspective and proper degree for the nature of the whole situation. It just would have been better. So that's where we're at. And that's what, I th- that's what our suggestion is to you. And so in the rewriting of our bylaws, we're going to put this in there. And then when we bring our completed bylaw document to you, Lord, help us, please be ready to have a document to you and complete a rewrite of our bylaws this year. <laughs> Aren't you tired of me talking about it already in some degree? <laughs> Look, an imperfect but better church governance than what we currently have. An imperfect but better, another step down the road of, I think, what we believe will actually be good for the church. Okay? Good for the church, good for the pastors, good for the elders, good maybe even in our help of other churches. So we need your help with this. We need to know what you think about what we're teaching you. We need to know what ideas and thoughts you have about what we can do and how to do it. We really want it to be a dialogue. And so please um, give us your feedback as you think through these things and uh, we would love to have that. Stand with me for prayer. And uh, we're not going to sing a closing song because we don't have much time to tear down and uh, get out of here. Father, thank you. Help us. Give us wisdom. We need it, Father. You are good. We trust that you will. Uh, help us to do this in love for one another and for the good of your church, uh, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.